Hi, everybody. I talked to Paul Wallace yesterday. He's the author of The Scars of Eden. And we really went down the rabbit hole in terms of the what are called uncomfortable passages in the Old Testament, which are in the eyes of uh, Eric von Daniken and Sitchin and many others, including Paul Wallace, who's done his own translations, referring to ET presence. So we looked at that and how this kind of contact is overlaying in today's modern world, particularly among indigenous people. And that's why we call this good gods, bad gods. So without further ado, let's go to Paul. Paul, welcome. G'day, Regina. It's great to be with you. You're in Australia right now? Certainly am, in New South Wales, just outside the Australian Capital Territory. All right. So we have a massive time difference. I'm glad you could make it work. And I really enjoyed your book, which a mutual friend named Sandy Sedgbeer turned me on to called The Scars of Eden. This is a story that to me is evolving and has tremendous impact on modern times. And even though we're looking through traditional lens, I think the story that's emerging here is affecting every human being on this planet um, one way or another, depending on the background that their tribe and what's in their ancestral DNA, what we've bought into. So first, let's start with you personally and your own background, how you became a priest and how this journey led you to where you are now, including your married family, your in-laws. Oh, all right. Well, my work was for 33 years in the field of Christian ministry, working as a church doctor, a theological educator, and for a while as an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia. I became a Christian in a roundabout way through reading Eric von Daniken when I was uh, 11 years old. And I felt he'd put his finger on some really big questions in the sense of, our difficulty in explaining ourselves as a species and where we'd come from, why we're so different to the other, other animals, and yet it's so obvious we're a kind of animal. And I felt that the religious answers I was getting at school and the scientific answers just left a gap, and he put his finger on that. And so those questions led me into deeper questions. When I was 17, I became a, a Christian believer, went into the world of ministry, and got busy and uh, never quite got back to those big questions that Eric von Daniken had asked. And it's only much more, <clears throat> excuse me, much more recently that uh, the universe gifted me the time to get back to those questions and drill down into them. And I did it th through the arena of Bible translation and hermeneutics, which had become uh, my thing in ministry. Uh, my family, yes, this was an amazing moment because my research led me to writing Escaping from Eden, which is about finding paleo contact, ET contact in the Bible. And I was preparing to publish that book when suddenly I remembered I had to tell my parents-in-law about this book. All my previous books were nice Christian books about mysticism and spirituality. And my parents-in-law from Ghana, they're devout Christians, Baptist, Pentecostal background, and I just had no idea how they would respond to me saying, uh, Patience Kofi, my new book is about aliens in the Bible, because that's what I think a lot of it's really about. So I had to tell them they came and stayed for the weekend, and when we'd had a lovely meal and some lovely Australian wine and everyone was relaxed, I broke the subject to them, and poker faces, they gave nothing away as I told them all this stuff. And at the end, when I finally paused for breath, my father-in-law leant back in his seat and he said, Paul, a penny has dropped. Because suddenly all those moments in the Bible that hadn't made sense to him were clicking into place as he realized, yes, those are ET narratives. And then my mother-in-law leant forward and said, Paul, we already know this story. In Ghana, everyone knows there's a non-human presence intersecting with human beings on planet Earth. You'll get taught the modern scientific view, Christian orthodoxy at school, but you listen to the local knowledge, and we all know about the Mamiwata people. We all know about ET abductions. 
And in fact, we're very closely connected with a family who's experienced this. Well, my jaw hit the floor. I had no idea I was that close to this experience. I had no idea they knew these things. And then further down the track, I discovered that um, shamanic knowledge about heightening human potential, which is all in the book as well, that's in my family's heritage as well. So it was an amazing relief and sort of a great affirmation to keep going, keep drilling down, keep sharing the story and not to be too scared about it. Well, you just mentioned that they had their own understanding, both from modern times and their ancient roots, having to do with alien presence and abduction. And in fact, they told you of this girl, Akua, who is that, do it, is I'm, am I saying her name correctly? Akua? Yes, Akuya, that's right, from Aloga in Ghana. Okay. And so they were telling you a little bit about this story, which if you'll reveal that, that would be interesting, but we're going to actually get to that part of the story a little bit later and flesh it out a bit. But it just just looking at what's happening in their modern culture regarding ET contact. Well, the story of Akuya, this was the family that my in-laws are closely connected with. This was a girl who went missing for three years from the beach in Anloga in the Kita district of Ghana. She reappeared after three years. They had no contact with her in that time. They had no idea what had happened to her. They were thrilled to have her back, but it was clear to them she was not telling them everything about where she'd been, why she hadn't been able to reach them. They assumed it was, you know, an elopement or a kidnapping or sex trafficking or something appalling like that. And it took a long time before she finally opened up and she said, the reason I couldn't contact you is that I was held in an underwater base. I was made to have children and the people who held me were not human. They were Mammy Water. Now, when she said that her mum knew the Mammy Water stories, uh, I don't know how seriously she had taken them. She never expected to hear that as the explanation from her daughter. It in no way solved anything or, or gave her daughter any advantage to share that story. She was so reluctant to share it. But it was a story her mother knew because it's a story that's been told for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, repeating in every detail through all that time. So... This led you on a path of discovering similar stories in other indigenous tribes and ancestral memories, but at the same time, so we're going to do a lot of paralleling here, at the same time, there are characters throughout Christian history who also had this more literal interpretation. It, it really kind of bends the mind to look at the Old Testament and try to take it literally. You just can't take it literally. Um, and when you start looking at, I mean, uh, figuratively, when you start looking at and metaphorically, but when you start looking at it literally, it does start making sense. So we have Marcion and some other characters in uh, Christian history who did try to go against the grain and point some of this out. And so talk about that for just a minute before we go into what you discovered through these other tribes around the planet, sure. indigenous peoples. Well, it was a huge question in the early years of Christianity, what to do with the Hebrew scriptures. Would they be the scriptures for Christianity or, or did they need to jettison them? And there was a big push and pull debate really for a couple of hundred years as that played out. And even within the New Testament, you can see that debate happening. And there were church fathers, very significant church fathers, senior leaders in the church in the early days who said, well, we can't take it literally. If, if God is like he is in those stories, that's really incompatible with what we've heard from Jesus. Those Elohim stories, to use the earliest word in the Bible for God, are about something else. They're about another kind of entity intersecting with human history. And many of those church fathers took that view because they came to Jesus's teaching via Plato. Plato was, had really expressed international thought in the most beautiful way. They believed his explanation of origins, which included 
our species having been visited and adapted by visitors from elsewhere in the cosmos. And they read the Hebrew scriptures in the light of that, and they said, look, we're reading about some of these other entities. Let's call it for what it is. And some of the behavior of these other entities is really very anti-human. If we believed those stories were about God, we would have to believe of God things we would not believe of the most savage and unjust of men. That was Origen saying that, the father of Christian hermeneutics. And even though they were very mainstream people, so Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, and Marcion, increasingly orthodoxy was narrowed down, a simpler story was wanted. And as empire became involved, it narrowed it further. The picture they wanted was of God and the emperor at the top, the bishops and the senators in the middle, the people at the bottom, they didn't want a more complex picture than that. And in fact, a god to be feared is useful if you are an empire wanting a religion of worship and obedience. And for all kinds of reasons like that, people like Origen, Clement, Marcion, they were pushed out. Uh, their works were edited or totally destroyed in the case of Marcion. And so the whole discussion of other entities, ET visitations, was lost and became a taboo in Christianity, really from that time almost to this. So thank you for that. So we have that basic understanding of how the Old Testament took on the look that we understand today, you know, the messaging we, we understand today. Now let's go to the other part of the story. You're also examining where these others, uh, the people not like us, the powerful ones, all the names for them, how they fit in in some of the places in the world. I could read the list of them, but why don't you just do it? All of the places around the world in which this story, interestingly, seems to be mostly post-deluge, post-trauma, fits in. Well, the first place I discovered it was in the Bible, when I did some translation work around the word Elohim, and though it's often translated as God, it's sometimes translated as demons, false gods, landlords. And I wondered, why are they, how are they making that call? And why is it a plural? And so I asked the question, what happens if you retell the stories with that word in the plural? Its root meaning is the powerful ones. So let's read it that way. And that's what I do in Escaping from Eden. And I, I walk the reader through my own journey with that. Suddenly, I realized I was reading the summary form of the ancient Sumerian, Babylonian, Arcadian, and Assyrian stories. And those stories are not God's stories. They're stories about the sky people, or what some people would know as the Anunnaki. And they're not gods. They are advanced beings from somewhere else who colonized our planet in the deep past. And then from there, I did. I started traveling around the world and finding it re-expressed in other cultures all around the world. So you can go to Nigeria and you've got the story of a Basi and a Thai who are extraterrestrial beings who live on an island in the sky. And they're doing genetic modification with the human race there. But it repeats. You can read it in the Greek narratives, the Vedas, of course. It's there in Celtic story. You've got stories of hybridization in almost every culture around the world. And to my astonishment, the most frequently recurring story in ancestral narratives is to do with hybridization, that our visitors want some of what we have in their own gene pool. And when I set out to write The Scars of Eden, it wasn't my ambition to write a book about E.T. abduction because uh, I know that's a topic people find really hard to do business with. They find it hard to take seriously. But I couldn't leave it out because it is in the cultural memory of every culture around the world. But there's another side to the story as well because, you know, I say E.T. abduction and our minds straight away go to invasion of the body snatchers and Mars attacks and all these awful yeah. images. But the earliest stories of paleo contact, if we listen to Native American peoples, uh, Aboriginal Australians, 
uh, to the story from uh, Babylonia via Greece, the Barossa story. What we're listening to is of benign, benevolent, helpful, beautiful beings arriving on our planet and helping our ancestors learn how to live on the planet's surface, how to find uh, plants that are good for food, how to avoid plants that are toxic, which plants are good for medicine, which are good for heightening consciousness. And if you go to the book of Enoch, which you can find in the Ethiopian Orthodox canon of the Bible, they teach other things. They teach hair and makeup. They teach fashion and other accoutrements of civilization. So there's this very, very layered story of paleo contact around the world, some worrying, some mystifying, and some for which we're profoundly grateful because it gave us all the rudiments of living as a civilization on our own planet. So this, of course, makes the entire story more complex because we're dealing with a completely different kind of experience. Then we're dealing with something political that was thrust upon humankind in the Judeo-Christian cultures, extending even into the Muslim culture. And we're looking at something that is requiring obedience rather than is here in a benevolent way. And the net effect I'm interested in is if we go through our ancestral DNA memory, how it's still impacting us today. So before we get to that part, let's talk about the ways some of these beautiful beings showed up in, in biblical times, for example. And in fact, you call it something, eh, kind of benign, but it wasn't benign for you because you had a, an observation of a couple and their little toddler that to you looked like what people were speaking of when they have these experiences, but there was no way for you to validate that at the time. But still, you're looking again, the description of these tall, pale skin, beautiful people. In Freddie Silva's work, they, he calls them the shining ones who do go and assist after devastations uh, throughout history on planet Earth. So let's talk about a couple of places they showed up in the Bible, including Sodom, because this is a little different kind of take on it and a story that uh, Father Olar goes into in his book as well that leaves you scratching your head. So let's talk about that. Well, there are encounters in the Bible that when you read them alongside the Mesopotamian stories, you know you're reading encounters with sky people. And so one example is Abraham and Sarah. Now, they're the progenitors of the Hebrew tradition in the Bible story, although their names are strangely similar to Brahma and Saraswati of the Vedic tradition. So I am now thinking that the Abraham and Sarah story is a far more ancient primordial story than we think it is. I think it's a story of beginnings. What happens in the story as we have it in the Bible is they have some visitors. And the visitors uh, have lunch with them. And they say this time next year, Abraham, your wife will have a child. And he's thinking, I don't think so. Um, She's past the age. And they're saying, no, no, she really is going to have a child. And he turns out to be the beginning of a whole new swathe of, of human history. It's only after the conversation that Abraham and Sarah realize those guys weren't human, were they? And then when their prophecy comes true, they, they get the evidence. No, there was something else going on in that conversation. So that's an intriguing moment. But those beings, those mysterious beings, then go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reception they're given there, it's a very strange story uh, read in the current <laughs> translation. They get mobbed by people who want to have sex with them. And you read it in the current translation, you think, why would that be the response to a couple of strangers turning up in town? But then look at the footage of the Beatles showing up somewhere in 1962 um, or of, or of a, a teen idol today trying to walk through an airport. They get mobbed by people in exactly the same way who want exactly the same thing. They're driven wild because, oh, my goodness, 
Here's this superstar. And what that tells us about those encounters is that these were incredibly beautiful people wandering around the planet who had that effect on us. And so when you go back to the, the stories of E.T. abduction, you begin to understand why some of the ancient narratives like the Maharani tradition or the Mami Water tradition or the stories from out of the Philippines or Wales or anywhere else you wish to go, the story is always these people are not taken by force for this hybridization thing. They are enticed by the beauty of the people who take them with promises of advancement. And that's a little, for instance, there in the Bible of, oh, they were that drop-dead gorgeous. That's, the, the town, as that's you wrote, how they your, did that. You wrote in your words, they were rabid and went after them to rape them. Now, as I recall, am I correct in reading this elsewhere, that the two visitors were, they appeared to be male. Is that correct? And yes, that's, that's how yeah. they're described. And the father They're, they're described said, in the text as men. Yeah. Yes, as men. And so the father, which is to me probably the craziest part of the story, said, oh, no, no, don't take our beautiful visitors, rape my daughters instead. This is actually yeah. in there. It is actually in there. And it's, it's one of those moments where any preacher, I mean, <laughs> a preacher is supposed to bring out his the moral of the story. <laughs> Here's a positive take home from this story. And many of these ancient stories, you cannot do that with. People yeah. often want to write mythology off as moral tale. That's not a moral tale. That's a bewildering story of somebody who's bewildered and fearful and terrorized and confused. It's not a moral story. It's obviously some kind of curation of memory and it flips when as soon as you can make that change and go back to these texts and instead of reading them in a fundamentalist way or as a moral story ask what memory do these stories carry that's when you start hearing new things i agree and another part of that story people think um uh is not only with those beautiful beings, but also in the instance of leaving behind, don't look back, don't turn back, because you'll turn to a pillar of salt in the Bible, right? But if you look at it through the lens of potentially having advanced technologies, laser exactly. technologies and others, these are not a stretch for what we even know and can accomplish as humans today. Exactly. And, so yeah. we today can read a passage like that and realize there's technology being referred to, or we can read of a, a stargate in Genesis 11 and recognize it, or a wormhole in another passage and recognize that, recognize technology from remote communication, rocket launches. We read these texts and we say, oh, I think we've got words for what these writers are describing, whereas 200, 300, 400 years ago, the translators had no grid for this. And so for centuries, these stories were told as stories of something spiritual. We're now in the position of having other frameworks that means we can look at these things and say, I think I've got an idea what's going on here. I hope you're enjoying this video because if you are, there are dozens more like it on my site, all supported by people like you. So if you'd like to keep this work rolling in and join our community, just click on the Patreon button at reginameredith.com. That also gives you access to insider commentary, my live book club, and other live events with special guests. So join in. Thanks. When we start looking at, here we have these beautiful beings who were tantalizing the people uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the same time, we have other beings who are coming here that seem to be taking humans and doing with them what they feel is necessary to do for themselves. And you liken this in your book, before we cast judgment on it, to something very similar as to what we do with animal species on our planet today. And this, uh, many people find this difficult and highly insulting to think that human beings are treated as perhaps just another animal, another species on this planet in a certain way when looked at from the eyes of an advanced 
quote, yeah. technologically advanced species. Let's talk about that for a moment before we go into Jane Poole. Sure. It's difficult to think about these things, first of all, because it's frightening, the idea that we could be overpowered by a species we know nothing about. It's also difficult when you come at it from a faith angle, which was my angle, where, you know, human beings, the apple of God's eye, and now it looks like we're actually a species that's being toyed with, genetically interfered with, so on and so forth. But as soon as you begin coming to terms with the idea, we're in a populated universe, and ultimately we're all related. We're all from the same genetic coding that's been seeded throughout the cosmos. Then you can come back to realize that, you know, what we do with dogs, where we crossbreed them so that one is more responsive to whistles and signals so they can work with us. Uh, and work the sheep with us. One is more placid, so it can live in the house with us. We do this with dogs. And it's not because we hate dogs or we want to abuse them. We love dogs, but we still bred them for specific things. And our ancestors say that that's been our experience as a species too, that we're somewhere in the middle of this picture and we have company that's more advanced and we have company that's less advanced. We're somewhere in the middle. And that is difficult to come to terms with when you've always had this other theological view of humanity at the apex of evolution. So when we look at it through the lens of uh, Dr. John Mack, the late Dr. John Mack, whom everybody loved and adored, and I had the pleasure of meeting a long time ago, and also Barbara Lamb, who I did an interview with, I think probably 12 or 13 years ago, uh, both psychologists looking uh, very sincerely, intelligently, and with a great amount of graciousness um, into the subject of ET contact and abduction. One of the things that comes out is that once a person has a chance to come to terms with what possibly may have happened or what they definitely feel did happen, things change for them. It's really that fear of the unknown. And you've dealt with this quite a bit yourself with some of your own people and clients. Let's talk about what happens then when it starts making sense to us. What happens to the fear? I think it, what's really interesting is that people who have these experiences, they don't always tell them as traumatic or traumatizing experiences. And it's often very difficult for the family when somebody says, I uh, was taken, I was used for hybridization, whether it was a very... Uh, an experience where they're just remembering flashes of what happened or if they've gone missing for three years, like Akuya and Inan Loga, when they come back and say, actually, they're quite nice, these other beings, and uh, they really cared for me, and I have a good feeling towards them. Families struggle with that. If you come back with a story like that in Kenya, you're likely to be taken to the doctor for medication or to the priest for an exorcism. It doesn't go down well. But there is that aspect to the relationship. Now, there is a spectrum of experiences. Some people do have yes. more frightening experiences than that. But there are others who will say, no, they're actually not trying to be vicious or cruel. Yes, they want some of what we have in their gene pool, but I actually found them beautiful people and they looked after me. Yes, and oftentimes they say there, there was an exchange of sorts where perhaps a few people I've interviewed um, said that they came back with an enhanced sense, for example, of uh, intuition. Um, oh, yes. Well, of telepathy. You, you, you put that very gently, but uh, yes, they will come back with heightened cognitive abilities, things like precognition, future viewing, remote viewing. And again, it's not a story people tend to spread too widely. They don't want to be ridiculed and they don't want to be prodded and probed and experimented on. But yes, Regina, you're absolutely right. They're, that promise of advancement that's given 
is often met and people do come back with heightened abilities. I talk about this a little bit in Escaping from Eden, the syndrome that's known around the world as acquired savant syndrome, which is a real world phenomenon. It's studied by Mm -hmm. um, neuroscientists, it's peer reviewed science, and they study incidents of people who have an accident or a, a brain event or central nervous system injury. And all of a sudden, they can speak a language they couldn't speak before, or they've got phenomenal skills in mathematics or advanced physics, this, that, or the other. So that's being studied. What's less known and less spoken about is the connection between acquired savant syndrome and close encounters. And I've been in contact with a lot of people around the world. That's been their experience, and they've hardly dare tell anyone about it. Well, you had your own experience. We haven't even talked about that yet. I mean, it's toward the beginning of your book. And so let's talk about what happened when you were in Bath, England, 20 years old, uh, shivering under your covers. Yes, this was an experience which sat with me for 30 years, mystifying me. I just didn't know what had happened on that evening. What happened was I was living in Bath, uh, very happily in my beautiful apartment, until one evening when there were five entities in my bedroom. And I didn't know what I was looking at. I knew they shouldn't be there. I knew they weren't human. They were about the size of a year six. And I just hid under the covers. And then I didn't know what had happened next. I just assumed I must have fallen asleep, except you don't really just fall asleep when you're terrified. And I sat with that for years. At the time, I was, it was just as I was going into the world of ministry. And so in my evangelical framework, I had to think, well, was it God, the devil, angels, demons, animal, vegetable, mineral, because I didn't have any other boxes to tick. And so I just thought, well, it must have been demonic then, because it was scary. But the more theology I did, the more I read the Bible, I knew actually that is not how a demon operates, according to Christian theology. That was something else. And it was only after I published Escaping from Eden and people started contacting me with their own close encounter experiences that I started thinking again about what had happened. And people would often want to share their stories, but they'd want to test me first to see if I was really trustworthy with their story. And they'd say, have you had a close encounter, Paul? And I would say, no, I haven't. But the more I heard, the more I thought, hang on, what was that? (laughs) I go back to it now and I realize there was another box I could have ticked called close encounter of the fourth kind. And now I realize that's exactly what it was. It was one of four anomalous encounters that year, four or five, actually, that I now go back and think those were all extraterrestrial interdimensional encounters. And I didn't understand what it was at the time. All this time later, I've gone back and thought, oh, my days, that was an encounter. And that's happened for people I've coached as well, where they sat with an experience for 30 years, and now they're processing it and giving themselves permission to think this was an otherworldly encounter. Paul, do you think that that was an essential event? Those were essential events in your life? to put you on the path of doing what you're doing now for some perhaps other agreement that's made on a subconscious or soul level that we're not aware of. And and I only say that because I've often wondered if, because I believe, and I know many have come to believe that we are a hybridized species. You can see the effects of hybridization throughout history within our beings, within our psychology, within our appearance and so forth. So if we're hybridized beings, is it possible some of our own people from another time that we may have an admixture in our DNA from might be coming back to tap us to work with us again? Is that possible? I certainly think that's possible. I also think a lot of us are simply under observation 
Yeah. That uh, our visitors are really interested in us and are studying us in exactly the same way we study wildlife on planet Earth. As to the effect on me, I think it's funny. I, I started writing in this field and people were asking, why is this so important to you? Why are you so passionate about this? Mm. And I, I, I'm not really sure why I'm so passionate about it. I think it does connect with that experience. And something that did arise from it was as soon as I came to terms with the fact I had experienced something I couldn't explain, it gave me an open ear to hear other people's experiences that wouldn't fit the grid, that, that wasn't part of the mainstream narrative. And from that moment on, it meant I noticed the anomalies and was willing to say, I don't know what that was. What was that? And it shaped the ministry I did as a church doctor. You always have to listen or look for the hidden stories, the things you're not being told in order to resolve situations. And so that, that sensitivity to look for the red flags, to follow the white rabbits, I think that flowed from that experience for me. And I really appreciate the fact that you had the courage to start looking at it and publicly speaking about it, because some of the things and the stories in the book are leave you quite vulnerable to criticism. But that's the journey, I think, of most anyone um, who takes this on, particularly when you have a, a different kind of mantle, such as the church behind you and whatnot. Um, certainly, the ridicule factor is much more has much more impact on your life than the, an average person, for example, that just, you know, doing a day job and keeping it to themselves, you have a different kind of responsibility. And it was hard for you. It wasn't easy. You say you get up in front of groups and you think, should I, should I kind of pull my words a bit to not be ridiculed here? Talk about that for a moment. It's difficult because I, I mean, I was very fortunate when I really got my skates on and did the research that led to escaping from Eden, it was in between congregations. If I'd been leading a congregation at that time, I couldn't have done it because yeah. it would have split my congregation for me to start speaking about these things. Some would say, oh, do you know, I've always wondered that. And others would say, this is heresy. Uh, you need to resign, pastor. So I was lucky that I had that moment, but it's difficult because it's not just about the people you're with in your circle and the flock that you're pastoring right now. When you've been in ministry for 33 years, you've collected a lot of people that you are about to disappoint profoundly because you're going to go off a script that they have invested so much of their lives into and they feel that you're going to pull the rug mm. from under their feet. People some would look and say, oh, my goodness, I must stop listening to Paul because he could really damage my faith. Or they get very angry because you are speaking taboos. And so it is very difficult. You don't want to disappoint people. You don't want to hurt people. You don't want to hurt people's faith. But at the same time, are we seekers of truth or not? You know, and I think a believer should be a seeker of truth. And if I offend people who are just so wedded to a particular set of conclusions, then that's fine. Let them carry on with their conclusions. I'm not going to go and bully them into agreeing with me. But it's important for me to start speaking these things because it gives permission to people in the faith world, all around the world, to say, I've always thought that, or I had this experience and I've never been able to speak about it. And so I hear from people of all ages and people in ministry who say, thank you so much. It is such a relief that this is on the table for us to talk about because the taboo has made it very painful for me to journey with my experience or the things I've seen. But you do, you take your life in your hands when you go public with something that you know is so stretching. Indeed, you're a courageous soul for having done that. Uh, we all get to benefit from it. Um, one of the things that really fascinated me, I alluded to it earlier, and we talked just for a moment off camera about, is something that was said, I was reading your book, I'd had dinner with uh, Father Sean 
um, earlier, a, a month or two ago, and we were talking about the incredible cognitive dissonance and neuroses and lack of self-esteem in the Western world. And we know there are a lot of reasons for that right now. And we have to wonder who are the gods uh, that might be influencing things right now, right? Uh, walking oh, absolutely. Humans, and that's another story. Um, and the one thing, one thing he said was, you know, it's so interesting during his years in Africa, where he spent 14 years as a Catholic priest, um, helping the village along and working with the people in the village. Um, in those 14 years, he said he never once met a person that had low self-esteem, that was self-condemning, self-hating, all of the things that happen in the Western world and Western culture. And so I was looking at your book and about the various people who had encountered these beautiful beings who had helped them through times of travesty to get on their feet or help enhance their own skills and abilities. And then I was thinking about the Old Testament gods that all of us were raised on, the punishing, punitive, bloodthirsty gods uh, that demand our obedience. And I thought, wait a minute, is it possible that part of the reason, if it's even true, and you would know more about this by far because you've been with the people, indigenous groups and elders, is it possible that the native sense of just feeling comfortable in your own skin might also go hand in hand with the notion that deep ancestral memory is that when help is needed, help will be given. And you're allowed to be human and live your life and think your thoughts and make your mistakes versus those who have been inculcated with the notion that we have to serve a punishing God, a judgmental and punishing God for our own salvation, for our soul's salvation. I don't know if this makes sense to you. I ran it by Father Sean for just a second maybe make a quick comment because I'm going to have you two together with me at Gaia to have a conversation and go deeper into this. That's a wonderful question. It's so profound. I'll go to the indigenous stories first, and then I'll go back to the, the angry God second. So uh, don't let me forget. So going to the indigenous story, if you go to a traditional healer in Southern Africa to Ananga or a Sangoma, they will perceive you arriving with a little cloud uh, of invisible company there to support your journey and to support your healing. And the things they will do to affect your healing are essentially trying to tune in to the conversation between the entities supporting you and the entities supporting the healer. That's the same modality that you'll hear from guardians of Native American healing as well. And I love that explanation of things. I can interpret experiences I've had by that grid. I love that affirming view that we have other entities that we're not even quite sure who they are, who are supporting us and supporting our healing. That's actually there in the roots of Christianity as well. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And it's talking about ancestral spirits interested in us and supporting us on our race. And then there's another text in 1 John 4, where the writer fully expects the early Christians to be hearing from other entities and getting good information from them. And he calls them spirits, but never says what they are or, or where they're from. He says, as long as you keep your sovereignty, keep your autonomy, don't give your power away, filter everything you hear, you'll be getting good information. So you've got that view. And so what that means is that these indigenous cultures produce people who are not only comfortable in their own skin, they're comfortable in a sea of company, uh, invisible company, and I think that speaks to that sense of self and self-esteem that you were just talking about. Whereas we go back to the Elohim stories of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, there are stories where they're helping us. And then there are stories where they're going to war against each other because they're competing for hegemony and control and resources. And they're slaughtering humans in the process. 
they're behaving in the most appalling draconian way. And it's one thing to read that as the stories of the dragons or the stories of the Elohim, but as soon as you airbrush the name God over those stories and say these are God's stories, now it's God who's genociding human beings. Now it's God who will punish you and your children and your children's children for seven generations for some mistake you've made. And it's not only that you've got to come to terms with God being that unforgiving and vicious and violent, you have to worship him. So what does it do to our psychology if we worship a monster? If you worship a monster, ultimately it will make a monster of you. If you worship somebody uh, that you'll excuse of a genocide, then then <laughs> what has that done to your conscience, your, your moral grid? But if you're also so fearful of an entity who can kill 70,000 humans at the drop of a hat just like that, you will tiptoe around him, anxious that you could accidentally offend him any moment. And I liken that in the scars of Eden to what happens to a child living in the home where there's a parent who's got mental health problems, substance issues, um, who's an alcoholic, where the child has to tiptoe around the mood of this potentially very dangerous person and the self-esteem of that child absolutely evaporates. We've done that to ourselves as a species by believing we're in a cosmos with a fearful, violent God at the top of it who we have to love. So that was part of my urgency in writing the Eden books, to try and separate our concept of God, the source of the cosmos, from this violent, punitive behavior that was actually the behavior of other beings. As soon as you realize, no, it wasn't God who did those things. It was colonizers. And, and all colonization is ugly. All colonization gets violent. That's what those stories are, not stories about the source of the cosmos and everything in it. And I think it, a huge weight lifted from my shoulders when I realized that. Mm -hmm both in terms of, oh, now I no longer have to justify these ridiculous behaviors when I preach from the texts, but also you recover your own sense of mind. You can now call a genocide for what it is. You can now name things for what they are, both in ancient texts and in the world around you, and you begin to value yourself and other human beings in a totally fresh and sincere way that before was not quite possible. That makes sense because it, it simply diminishes the uh, classic cognitive dissonance that happens. I know I had that as a child reading about this bloodthirsty stuff in, in the Bible and at Sunday school and thinking, whoa, this is the God I'm supposed to be praying to. And of course, in the book, there's so much, uh, as I said, in the open I have 60, some 70 pages dog-eared because there's so much to take away from this book. So I highly encourage people read it. And so did Eric Von Daniken, I might say. Um, he endorsed your book and said he recommended picking up this book and reading it because it's very rich. Now, I have one more thing I want to ask you before we go. Two things, actually. At the very end of the book, there was a big tease. Okay. And that tease was that you were walking to, into the office of Barbara Lamb mm -hmm. because you were ready to start discovering what may have been your own experiences and encounters. Are you, do you feel comfortable talking about that or is that for another day? Well, it, it is a big tease. I put it there, obviously, because I want people to read the next book, uh, <laughs> Echoes of Eden. Yes. But, but there was a second reason that I didn't spell out my experiences in, uh, I'll, I'll say a bit more about them now, but I didn't spell it out too much because one of the messages of the Scars of Eden is I want people to start telling their own stories, even if their stories that they don't understand. Something happened to me I've never got my head around. I think if we would give each other permission to share those stories, our picture of the world we live in and the cosmos we're in would completely change. Uh, every family circle, every friendship circle would have stories like that, and you put them together and you begin to realize we have company. So I wanted to share my story as a story of nothing, really, to 
encourage others who've got, oh, it's not a very dramatic story, but it was strange to share stories like that. But uh, in The Scars of Eden, I do talk about experiencing lost time, uh, being observed by entities, and uh, the impact that that had on me. Uh, I, I did do a session with Barbara Lamb, which uh, doesn't appear in The Scars of Eden. And what came out of that session was not necessarily more memory of what happened next. It was the it was the relevance and the importance of that encounter, what it did to the direction of my life. And that's really where I go in Echoes of Eden. I look forward to it. When is Echoes of Eden now? Is, is it done yet? I just first, saw that. Yeah, 1st of May this year is the day of release. It'll be available for pre-order before then, but 1st of May is the release date. May 1st, 2022. Um, as I said before, um, I highly encourage everybody to pick up a copy of this book, The Scars of Eden. And even, I know I haven't read the precursor to it, which is... Escaping from... Escaping, Eden. escaping, yes. Okay, so we'll uh, have everybody do a little search on you under Paul Wallace. And what's the best way for people to get hold of you if they want to have um, a session with you or a chat or per- want sure. to relay a personal experience? To have a session with me or a longer conversation, come to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com. That's Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. I'm always in the comments of the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube, having conversations there and on the Fifth Kind TV uh, on YouTube as well. Every day I'm in dialogue with people and it enriches me so much to share these journeys with people from all around the world. And I have to say, your programs on the Fifth Kind TV are very, very nicely produced. Um, I, as a producer myself, I, I was very impressed with them. So good work oh, thank you. all the way I've around. To, I have to give credit to Anthony Barrett, my collaborator there. He's the production expert on that. I'm, I'm just the talking head. All righty. Well, very modest of you. The two of you collaborate nicely. Again, I look forward to seeing you soon in a couple months time at Gaia, where you and Sean and I will get together and we'll drill down further into this deep ancestral memory and what kinds of gods, good gods, bad gods, have our ancestors and ourselves been influenced by uh, subconsciously. Again, thank you so much, Paul. It's been a delight talking with you. Thanks, Regina. It's been a pleasure. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And again, I really look forward to having that three-way conversation between Paul and uh, Father Sean and myself. I think it's going to be just incredibly insightful with some truly profound insights coming out of it. Meanwhile, you can follow up on Paul's work by going to paulanthonywallace.com. You can also go to his YouTube channel, uh, The Fifth Kind TV. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.